But we are in Romans chapter 12. We're going to be starting in verse 3 tonight. So if you have your Bibles, Romans chapter three, uh, chapter 12, verse 3, I'm going to start reading. It says, For by the grace that was given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as, if, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, to the, the one who leads, uh, sorry, contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Last week, we kind of st- saw how uh, Paul is finishing up chapter, uh, uh, he's finishing up really in the first 11 chapters, he's gone into giving this in-depth explanation of our salvation, this in-depth explanation of the gospel and how it is that we are saved, why we need to be saved, what God has done to save us, how we receive this salvation. It's probably the most in-depth explanation that we have in all of the Bible is the first 11 chapters of Romans. And then he kind of picks up in chapter 12 saying, okay, now that we have heard all of this, knowledge, now we've heard all of this, what do we do with it, right? How do we practically live this out? What do we do, what should be expected of us as Christians in response to this good news that we have heard? And here's one thing that you do need to know, is that the gospel demands a response, right? There's a lot of things in your life that do not demand a response, there's so a lot of things in your life that you can hear it and, and kind of go about your day, and no matter what you do with it, it doesn't really make that big of a difference. But the gospel is not one of those things. That the gospel demands a response. And for so many people, they think that, oh, as long as I don't respond, or if I don't make a choice, then I'm good. But I want you to understand that when it comes to the gospel, not responding is responding. Does this make sense? And last week we saw that the proper response of a Christian is to give their life as a sacrificial offering of worship to God. That everything that we do should be to bring God glory and honor, to worship Him with our lives. We talked about kind of in general what that looks like. We gave some, and we saw that Paul is really speaking in general terms. He's not really getting super specific, but he is getting, you know, and we can kind of get some specificity out of the things that he said. But for the most part, it was rather general. Well, this week, he's actually going to continue on this thought of what does it look like to live a life of worship to God, and he's going to begin to get more specific. And in these few verses, what we see is really the majority of Paul's time is spent focusing on the fact that as Christians, we are called to use the giftings God has given us for his glory and for the good of others, right? And we're going to dive into this in a little bit more detail, but Paul's going to say that living a life of worship for God's glory is to walk in such a way that you are using the giftings that God has given you for the purpose of serving others and making him known to them. Please understand, guys, that as Christians, we were not saved to sit in our salvation and just wait until heaven comes. That as Christians, we were saved to be used. In essence, God has blessed you, and God has blessed me, but God has blessed you so that you can be a blessing to other people. A lot of us, we turn into spiritual cul-de-sacs when we get saved. Right? Everything comes in, but nothing goes out. 
And many people, this is what they think the Christian life is, is, okay, well, I, I, you know, I go to church, and I have my bubble around me, and, and I only let Christian people in this bubble, and I don't let anything get in the bubble that shouldn't be in the bubble. And, 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 and as long as I just do this, then, then I'm doing what God wants me to do. And I want you to understand that that is not the Christian life. That is not what we are called to be as Christians. Charles Spurgeon has a quote that says that every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. I want you guys to know that if you are not serious about taking the gospel and taking the salvation message that God has given you and using it as motivation to to serve other people and to make God known in their lives, then the Bible says that you could be an imposter. When we talk about serving God, serving others, there's a lot of things that we need to know. Okay, what does this look like, man? What does it specifically look like for us to be used by God in the lives of other people and and for His glory? When we talk about identifying our gifts and maximizing them for His glory, we need to understand something that Paul's going to get right out of the gate, and this is our first point. It's this. Resist pride. Verse 3, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Paul has been explaining the beauty of our salvation, right, for 11 chapters, talking about how God has pursued us, God has loved us and chosen us, and, he is, and, and how we respond by we pursue him in faith. And, and the temptation for every Christian upon hearing this good news, the response and the temptation for every Christian in this room is to take this and to think that in some way we are deserving of the grace of God. Whether it's because of something that I did or, or whatever. And, or what we do is we look at people who have not responded in faith. And we in some way think that it's because we're better than they are. That there's something elevated about me or lesser than in them. And when it comes to serving in the church, it's very easy Trust me, as a pastor, it's very easy for us to see God moving and, and using our skill sets and using all of these things and, and seeing God move in such a way that it's so powerful. And there's a temptation to think that, oh man, like God is working because of my skills. God is moving because of my willingness. Or God is moving because of me. And I want you to understand something, guys, that that is not the case that oftentimes what I have found is that God is moving in spite of me and not because of me. Like I've said before, this fall I will have been, I started as an intern, so it's not like a huge thing, but I started uh, on staff in a small capacity uh, 10 years ago this fall. And I've seen God do amazing things. I've seen God use me in special ways in the lives of other people. And I want you guys to understand that it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with God. And I'll tell you this, that there have been times where God has had to overcome my stupidity to accomplish his will. Don't overvalue yourself. Paul says, for by the grace that is given to me, now, whenever we see this idea of God giving grace, we kind of assume what he's talking about. But when Paul says this, it's best understood that he's talking about God's grace of making him an apostle. 
It's not necessarily God's grace of saving him, which of course we know is great, but it seems like Paul is referencing more the grace that is given to him to be an apostle. And, and he's essentially saying that the, com- that the command that he gives here in Romans chapter 12 comes on the basis of the fact that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. We can understand this because later in Romans, Romans 15, he says the same thing, but he gives a little bit more explanation. He says in Romans 15, 15, because of the grace given me, by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in priestly service of the gospel of the gospel of God. Now, it's important for us to understand biblically what an apostle is. Now, I'm not going to get super into detail here. We're going to kind of fly through it, but it's important for us to understand why Paul is talking about the grace given to him to be an apostle. The apostles were men that were chosen specifically by God to lead the early church by teaching and speaking on behalf of God and the scriptures to set the early guidelines and parameters of the church. All right? They set the parameters of the early church as they were led by the Holy Spirit. All the writings that we have of, in the New Testament were either written by or they were, uh, they were either written by or given by, in some aspect, the apostles. They were, they were led by the Holy Spirit. They were specifically chosen and there were specific things that had to be true of them to qualify them to be apostles. One of them was that they had to have been called by Jesus and they had to have been eyewitnesses of the physically resurrected Jesus now not going to get into too much detail here because this is not what this passage is about but I think it's important for us to understand the Bible gives no indication that these men were ever replaced when they died and the biblical office of apostle ended with the death of the last apostle it's important to understand okay because When someone claims to be an apostle, biblically, they are claiming to speak on behalf of God. Okay? So, just important for us to to mention. So, Paul met these qualifications. If you remember, uh, Paul on the road to Damascus, he's knocked off of his horse, and he sees the physically resurrected Jesus, and Jesus calls him into apostleship, and, and and he heard, and he explains in Galatians how he was taught the gospel, not by man, but he was taught the gospel specifically by the resurrected Christ, and, and we see, so Paul met all of these qualifications, and it's interesting because he is the only apostle that was not one of the 12 disciples. So constantly throughout his ministry, he's having to defend his apostleship. If you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you see this very clearly. But I think it's very important that we see this, though, that Paul doesn't say, on the authority of my apostleship. I'm giving you this command because I'm an apostle. He doesn't say that. No, what does he say? He says, on the basis of the grace that God has given me to be an apostle. See the humility in what Paul is saying here. And I I think it's important for us to know that this is the type of attitude that must be true of us when it comes to serving people inside and outside of the church. It should be true of any person that understands that every good thing that we have is because God has given it to us and that is it. Please understand that you will never hear me be on this stage and say, listen to what I'm telling you because I'm a pastor. You should be very careful of anybody who says that to you, by the way. Listen to me because I am a pastor. And anything that is good about me, anything that is good about you, anything that is good about us that we use in service to God and to others, we should understand is only because God has given it to us first. Understand that I am not a child of God because of anything that is good within me. 
I'm not saved because I did this or I did that. It is simply because of God's kindness to me. And likewise, as a Christian, God has chosen you to take the gospel to the world. And I want you to see, understand something, guys, that as you grow in your life, as you go into other seasons of life, or maybe in the season that you're in right now, you may see God doing amazing things in your life. Perhaps you've been able to disciple people, or you've been able to, in fact, maybe lead people to Christ, or maybe you've been able to see God just use you in incredible, incredible ways. But please understand, guys, that it is because of God and not because of you. See, in the Greek, there's uh, this whole phrase, thinking more highly of oneself than he ought to. That whole phrase in the Greek is one word. And it's hyperphreneo, hyperphreneo. You kind of hear that word hyper in there, and literally what it means is it carries this meaning of having a hyper opinion of yourself. For us, we would say today is, is it would be to overvalue yourself, to think of yourself more highly than you should. Don't view yourself, please understand, guys, as Christians, please do not view yourselves as some as more important to the work of God than you are. See, the calling for us to be involved in what God is doing in the world is not because God needs you, not because God needs me, but it's because of his love as a father to involve us in what he is doing. God can accomplish everything he wants to accomplish with or without your skills, but the fact that he chooses to use the giftings that he's given you and that he's given me is just an aspect of his kindness, not his dependency. In essence, what Paul is saying here is to resist pride. I want to be very clear about something, that there are a few things that are as destructive to the Christian life and the life of the church, for that matter, than pride. Few things will destroy your ministry quicker than pride. Now, when I say your ministry, some of you are like, well, I'm not a pastor. I don't plan on being a pastor. Again, guys, remember, every Christian is in ministry Some people are called to it vocationally, which means that's their career, that's what they get paid to do. But understand that whether you are a dentist, you are a businessman or businesswoman, or a stay-at-home mom, you are in ministry. And nothing will destroy your ministry quicker than pride. Think about it, it's pride that casts Satan out of heaven. It was pride that got Adam and Eve cast out of the garden. It was pride that convinced David that he could be with Bathsheba simply because he was the king. Pride is toxic. It's toxic and it is destructive. And understand something else, right? Because all sin is toxic, right? All sin is toxic. All sin is destructive. And it should be seen as such. But understand that sin, the sin of pride is extremely dangerous because it is often the hardest one to detect. It's obvious when you're lying. You know when you're lying. It's obvious when you speak profanely because you know it when you do it. It's obvious when you lust because you know that you've done it. It's obvious when you're being disrespectful because you can see it. But it's often very difficult to detect pride in your own life. It's so hard to detect because it's often hidden by what is seen. See, what is seen is often what protects us from the, from the temptation and the sin that is actually deeper within us. You see, it's often the sins that we don't see that motivate the sins that we do see. You with me? And the reason that so many people struggle with sin is because all they do is address the symptoms of sin without getting down to the root of what's actually causing it. 
Jesus says in the book of Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. If there's a problem with the things you are doing externally, you probably need to address a deeper sin that is going on within you internally. So if we're only focused on the sins that we can see or that other people can see, but we never address the hidden sins that often motivate the other ones, then we will never truly grow into who God has called us to be. For instance, let's look at the story of Adam and Eve. If I was to say, what was the temptation that Adam and Eve faced in the garden? We can get one of two responses. You can get the external one, the obvious one, or you can get the deeper one. Both of them are true. Both of them are true. If I said, what, what was the temptation that, that faced them in the garden? The surface, land, surface level answer, which would be correct, was to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Right? That was the temptation. And they failed. But I think that there's a deeper temptation that you see in the text. Genesis 3, 4 through 6. says, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Notice, the real temptation was the deception of thinking that they could be like God and that they deserved to be like God. It was the desires that were within them of what the fruit would accomplish that made, that was, that was the real temptation. The temptation was far more than just the fruit. The temptation is what the fruit would accomplish if they ate it. You with me? And it was the hidden sin that manifested itself in the outward sin. And they were deceived. Likewise, the true motivation behind most sins today is the pride that takes root before the action ever happens. Some of you may be looking at your life and saying, man, there's not a whole lot of external things going on, but I want you to understand that if you don't address those internal sins, eventually they will manifest themselves, I promise you. I promise you. See, pride is the hidden sin that is the hardest to get rid of because it is often the hardest to identify. Because what's interesting is that even good things can be done out of pride. I could get up here every week and preach to you out of pride, and you would never know it. You'd never know it. You could take two people doing the exact same action for two totally different reasons, and it can be very hard from the outside looking in to be able to tell what the difference is. You know, what I've also noticed, though, is that pride is often easy to identify in others and hard to identify in yourself. It can sometimes be easy to look at someone else and identify pride, but very difficult to look at yourself and identify pride. So what does pride look like? How can I identify pride in my own life? How can I identify pride when it comes to me serving God and serving the church and serving others and being used by God to glorify him and to help other people? I mean, if we're wanting to uproot it, if we're wanting to fix it, then we need to learn how to identify it first. And here are some different ways that pride manifests itself. The first one is arrogance. Arrogance. Now, this is the obvious one, right? This is the obvious one, and this seems to be the one that Paul's hitting at the most here. But still, it's so prevalent in the church today, isn't it? 
It's so prevalent in the church today. I find this to be totally mind-blowing, that arrogance, because arrogance has no place in the life of a Christian. None. Arrogance has no place in the life of a Christian. The whole basis, think about this, the whole basis of our faith is built on the fact that apart from Christ, I am nothing and I have nothing. Apart from Jesus, all I am is deserving of the wrath of God. Our whole faith is built on this fact. So for the fact that there is so much arrogance in the church is mind-boggling. It's crazy. The reason that, the way, like, you can see arrogance even in this room. And sometimes, if I'm honest in my own life, how is that, how is that so? I'm only saved because of God's loving pursuit of me. I did nothing to earn it, and there's nothing within me that merits it. So to think that I could arrogantly view myself as better than someone else is ridiculous. It's utterly ridiculous. But we do it all the time, don't we? Homeschoolers think they're better than public schoolers, and public schoolers think they're better than homeschoolers. You laugh. You laugh, but it's true. We're arrogant in our theology, the assumption that I am right and these people are wrong, and it's because I know the Bible better than they do. We're arrogant in our theology and assuming that we could never be wrong on a subject. I know this person has potentially studied the Bible longer than I've been alive, but they just don't know the Bible like I do. That's not to say biblical knowledge comes through age, but what I'm trying to say is, man, the pride of assuming everyone else is wrong. And I'm right. We're arrogant in our skills. I earned where I am because I'm simply better than others at this. We're arrogant in our moralism or in our behavior. I'm a better Christian than this person. Or I may not be perfect, but I'm better than this person. We compare ourselves by ourselves. We don't compare ourselves to the word of God because that will humble us real quick. So what we do is we, we compare ourselves to other people our age. Well, Mike says this stuff on, you know, on Tuesday nights, but like, like, if he saw the other kids at my school, he wouldn't be that hard on me. I'm sorry, is God going to, are you going to stand before God and he's going to measure you according to the standards of the people in your school? No. God's not going to be like, well, you were this or whatever, but let's be honest, you were better than most kids in ninth grade. No. We're arrogant when it comes to money. We're arrogant when it comes to sports. These things are all found in Christians as well as non-Christians. Understand something, guys, that everything that is good about you and everything that is good about me comes as a gift of God's grace and nothing else. James 1, 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will... He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What does it say? How is it that he brought us forth? How is it that he has called us? How is it that we were brought forth into light because of the word of truth? By his own will. Because he chose. Because he willed it. Not because you merited it or I earned it. Romans seven eighteen. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Galatians two twenty. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live 
live, but Christ who lives in, in me. In the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The Christian gospel is rooted in the idea that when I had nothing to give God, he gave me all of himself. That is the basis of our faith. And we deny the basis of our faith when we walk around with arrogance. When I was dead in my sins, he made me alive in Christ. And because of this, I owe everything to him. My arrogance was crucified on the cross. Let's get even more practical about what arrogance looks like. We're living in a world and in a culture that is going absolutely bonkers. Aren't we? If you don't believe so, just look at social media. Look at the news. Look at everything. Look at Target. Look at all of these different things. I'm not going to state the obvious, but we're approaching a month that is dedicated to people who are tragically deceived. We have people who are questioning what it means to be a man or a woman. We have people that are deceived about the basic principles of human life and biology. People that are deceived into thinking that truth is error and error is truth. And understand something. When you, upon seeing this foolishness, if your first response is to laugh or to mock, your arrogance is just as sinful as theirs. You are no different if your first response is to laugh or to mock them, you don't understand. Because I would say that both of you are deceived. One is deceived into thinking that falsehood is truth. And the other is deceived into thinking that apart from Jesus, you're any different. If you recognize that your knowledge of the truth is only as a result of God's grace, and you, then you understand that arrogance is the most unchristian thing that a person can have. When you see people who are lost and deceived, and they're held in darkness of their shame and their guilt, and there is no freedom for them because they are depending on their own righteousness and they're seeking their own truth, and if you don't respond in compassion and heartbreak, you have a deeper problem. If you don't relate to what Jesus said, when, when, when we saw that Jesus went out and he saw the crowds, and it says that he had compassion on them because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd, how can you claim to be a disciple of Jesus when your reaction and your response to people is the total opposite of him? We say with our mouths that we are no better than other people, but our actions seem to suggest that we actually think differently. And this is why when we share truth with people, we speak truth, right? We don't water down truth. But we have to speak it with gentleness and humility. Understand something, guys. People do not care how much you know until they know how much you care. If your heart does not break for people that are caught in deception, then you need to check your heart. Because if it wasn't for God and His grace, you would be no different than they are. I would be no different than they are. So we see it manifest itself, one, in arrogance. The second way that we see it manifest itself is in insecurity. Now, when you hear this, you may be confused. Insecurity, that, that's, that's the total opposite of pride, right? 
But I, would, I actually think that what you find is that insecurity is simply a different way that pride manifests itself. You see, both arrogance and pride come as a result of the individual continually focusing on themselves. Both of them come with an over-obsession of yourself. If you're overly insecure in your looks, your skills, your knowledge, or any other thing, please understand that you are not being humble. You're not being humble, but rather your obsession with yourself is the thing that is crippling you. I'll give you an example. Growing up, I was always small. I played football all my life, so that's a problem. My freshman year of high school, I was like 90 pounds or something like that. And, and, and here's the thing, like, and, and this isn't like, look, and there's nothing wrong with that, but for me, like, I struggled with this. I was insecure. So all growing up, I would do anything I could to try and gain weight. I would do, like, weight gainer shakes, and I would work out, and I would do this, and I would do that. And some of you were like, well, Mike, you beat that obstacle. Yes, I did. Thank you. Having a kid will do that, right? But, I, but here's what I'm trying to help you understand is I was so obsessed with the things that I wasn't that I missed the things that God was making me. Eventually I had to understand that the problem was that I was so obsessed with what I wasn't that I was too busy to see what God was making me. You see, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. See, as a Christian, we best glorify God with our service by getting our eyes off of ourselves and fixing them onto Jesus. Hebrews 12 what does it say? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us throw off every sin that hinders, everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Right? How we walk the walk of Christianity is by getting our eyes off of us and fixing them onto Jesus. You can't see Jesus when all you look at is yourself. So many of us spend our time looking in the mirror rather than the cross. And it leads to total destruction. And now that we see this, we see that pride also manifests itself in other ways, such as people-pleasing. And trying to be everything to everybody. Look, if any of you plans to go into ministry, like like vocational ministry, if you don't get this people-pleasing thing figured out, you're going to drive yourself crazy. Trust me. And, it, and I used to justify it. I'm just trying to be a good pastor. I'm just trying to be what this person needs me to be. I'm just trying to be. And what I was ultimately doing was I was trying to be Jesus for this person. I was trying to be what only the Holy Spirit could be for this person. And that doesn't come because I love them. It becomes because I think that I can do what only God can do. Pride. See, the best way that we serve one another and live our life for the glory of God is by fixing our eyes on the one that is truly better than all of it. And when we do this, then we will see ourselves with sober judgment, as Paul says. When you see yourself correctly, then you will see yourself in, with sober judgment. Notice in verse 3 that Paul is contrasting prideful thinking with sober judgment. So prideful thinking contrasted with sober judgment. Now, this word sober judgment is used elsewhere in Scripture. It's used in the story of the demon-possessed man. We talked about this 
Feels like forever ago, right? But when Jesus comes across the demon-possessed man and, and he casts the demons out of the man and, and, and the man uh, and the people from the town come and they said, the scriptures say that they saw him clothed and in his right mind. That word, in his right mind, is the same Greek word as the word that we see here in Romans that means sober judgment. So what we're seeing is this, is that people who are prideful are out of their minds. Literally. People who walk around with arrogance or insecurity or seeking to please people at the expense of whatever it may be, they're out of their minds. Me, out of my mind at times. But to be in our right mind, to have sober judgment, is to fix our eyes on Christ. So how do we do this, right? It's easy for me to say, okay, how we identify it, but now how do we do it? We do, how do we view ourselves with sober judgment? We need to view ourselves in light of the gospel. It's amazing how the gospel humbles us as Christians, and it does this because it forces us to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto Jesus. To the arrogant, it shows that all the good that they take pride in is actually a gift of God's grace, and they shouldn't take glory for what God has done. To the insecure, the gospel shows that that Christ has met us in our brokenness and declares us as righteous, and that the things that we don't like about ourselves don't matter in the grand scheme of eternity. The gospel shows us that we are more loved and valued than we can ever imagine, and that at the foot of the cross, those tempted with arrogance and those tempted with insecurity both find refuge and humility and rest at the feet of Jesus. So first point, we have to resist pride, and the second thing is we have to have regard for others. We see that most of this passage is actually focused on this. Paul goes on to explain many ways that we do this through service, teaching, exhortation, encouraging one another, uh, giving generously, leadership, loving one another, and so on. Paul makes something very clear that I want us to understand, that every Christian has been uniquely gifted by God to glorify him in a special way with their life. Everyone. Everyone. If you are in this room, God has uniquely created you, knit you together in your mother's womb, and has given you skills and giftings that are unique to you, to, that you can use to glorify God. Now, remember what Paul just said. That all these giftings are given by God, and we should never become prideful with them. Right? We should never become prideful with them, but rather we should humbly use them. Notice the structure of what Paul is saying. When you strip this whole text down to its basic elements, here's what you have. God has allotted to each person a gifting by his grace that allows them to glorify him and serve others. And because of this, you should do two things. One, don't be prideful with it. And two, don't be lazy with it. Now, I really want to spend some time, the rest of our time, and kind of camp out on this idea because I think that this is something that many people, young and old, struggle with. That God has gifted you uniquely to glorify him. I've learned that what holds many people back in serving the Lord is that they limit what God can use to a certain set of skills or personality traits. These are the type of people God uses, and I don't fit this category, so I guess he can't use me. What we've done is we've limited what God chooses to use, what God can use. I see this all the time, talking to volunteers about serving in student ministry. Some may be, even be in the room. They talk to me and they say, hey, well, like, you know, I'm not, like, I'm not a teacher or I'm not this or that. And here's the thing, like, I don't need you to be a teacher. I need you to be you. Right? 
don't try and be me. Like, you guys don't need another me. Honestly, you probably don't want another me, and I get that. Look at the story of David and Goliath. When David agrees to fight Goliath, he agrees to go fight Goliath. What does King Saul do? King Saul takes him, and he says, all right, here's my armor. He tries to put his armor on David. And, and David's like, yo, because Saul was, you know, taller than everyone. He was a bigger dude. David was a boy. And David says, yo, this armor doesn't fit me. So what did he do? He took the armor off, and he went out with a sling and grabbed five smooth stones. Let's be real. God isn't looking for a bunch of people that are skilled in the same ways as one another. David said, I can't wear this because it doesn't fit me. So he went out with what he had. And too many people are trying to fit into an armor that isn't theirs while they ignore the weapons that God has already given them. We try to go out and fit into someone else's armor. And that's not what God has called you to do. God has called you to grow in what he has given you. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't try to add skills to ourselves. We don't try to sharpen ourselves. If that was true, I wouldn't go to seminary. But please understand something. If you spend all your time focusing on what God hasn't given you, you'll never be able to glorify him with what he has. When I became student pastor, I knew what God had, I knew what God had made me good at. I knew what I was good at. I knew what I was not good at. And part of being a Christian leader is identifying your weaknesses and maximizing your strengths for the glory of God. You don't have to be good at everything. Paul's going to speak about this in more detail in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Understand this. Unity in the body of Christ is not the same thing as as uniformity. Unity is not uniform, u- sorry, uniformity. Ministry is a team sport. Tom Brady is widely regarded as the greatest quarterback of all time. Won, I believe, seven Super Bowls. If everyone on that team was as athletically skilled as Tom Brady, he would have won none. Because he's not fast. He's not particularly strong. He can't jump. What's he good at? Throwing a football, and he does it better than anybody. Find what he's good at, and he did it. Understand that the church is not a place where you come and watch others use their gifts. Too many Christians are totally content Perhaps even too many of you are totally content coming in here, watching me use my gift, and you go home and do nothing with yours. it's, It's a people that collectively come to the table with their gifts and open hands, ready to do what God has called them to do. Ask yourself two questions. One, what am I passionate about? And two, how can I glorify God with it? Simple. 
Don't overcomplicate this. What are you passionate about? How can you glorify God with it? And you'll be amazed at what God does. Paul goes on to list a bunch of different giftings, and we don't have time to get into all of these, but I want you to see that he specifically mentions that we should carry out these actions in accordance with the faith and the grace that God has given us. Based on what Paul is saying, we can see this, that there is a right way to serve, and there is a wrong way to serve. And the two ways that we waste our giftings is to not use them or to use them improperly. There are some people that I know that are so incredibly gifted, but because they rebel against God, there is so much talent that they are letting go to waste. Please understand something, guys. Do not waste your life. Don't waste your life. Don't assume that there's nothing in you that God can use, because I guarantee you that that is not the case. Devote your life, man. To, be, to, to it meaning something. I saw there was a, you know, those would you rather questions. This is the last thing I'm going to say, and the band can come up and stuff like that. But you see like those would you rather questions, right? And, I, and one of them was this. It's like, would you rather no one be at your wedding or no one be at your funeral? And I've heard, you know, I had some people say, well, like, no one at my wedding. Like, that's the thing. at my funeral. I'm not going to be there anyway, so who cares? But here's what I, this is in my honest take. I would rather there be no one at my wedding because if there's no one at my funeral, that means that my life wasn't really worth a hill of beans. I want my funeral to be so packed that you got people waiting in the parking lot. Not because of anything that I am. Not because I'm great. Because I want to devote my life. I want to pour my life out for other people and for God's glory. I want to die and know that I left nothing back. As an athlete, the greatest feeling you could possibly have is to be totally exhausted after an end of the game. Why? Because you know that there's nothing that you should have gave that you didn't. And so many Christians live their lives, and when they get to the end of it, they realize there was so much that they could have gave, but they didn't. And I don't want that for you. Because here's the thing, get it now. Because when you have a job and you have a, a, a house and a, a spouse and kids and a dog, your flexibility is not nearly what it is now. Align your life, uh, figure out that you're going to devote your life wholeheartedly and pour yourself out for the kingdom of God. Figure it out now. Some of you are like, hey, man, like this sounds great, but I don't know specifically what God has called me to do. You know what? That's what your leaders are for, right? That's what I'm for. Like, talk to somebody. Help, let us help you figure it out because I guarantee you that when you find out what God has called, called you to do, when you find out what God has gifted you to do, and you simply just say yes, you put your yes on the table, and you watch what God does with it, it will change your life. 